or take out. For good food, good service, and good friends, it's the Quarterback Club in Northfield. National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, and you joined us for today's edition of National Security This Week. We get together every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security, and we're fortunate enough to be joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us learn more about American national security. We're starting a new series of shows today. We'll be covering different agencies in the U.S. intelligence community throughout the fall, learning how they are organized, what missions they carry out in support of American national security, and how they're aligned inside the U.S. intelligence community. Today, we're going to begin in that series with the Defense Intelligence Agency, or DIA, as it is called. And with us to discuss DIA is the current director, U.S. Army Lieutenant General Scott Barrier. Lieutenant General Scott Barrier serves as the 22nd director of the Defense Intelligence Agency. Prior to joining DIA, Barrier served in the Department of the Army as the 46th G2. In that role, he was the principal military intelligence and counterintelligence officer and advisor to the secretary and the chief of staff of the U.S. Army and the Army's intelligence community representative in the U.S. intelligence community. Lieutenant General Barrier is a career intelligence officer having served and commanded at every level from company to commanding general and senior mission commander. His Army, Joint, and Special Operations assignments include service throughout the United States, the Republic of Korea, Iraq, and Afghanistan. Scott Barrier earned a bachelor's degree in history from the University of Wisconsin at Stevens Point, a master's degree in general studies from Central Michigan University, and a master's degree in strategic studies from the U.S. Army War College. Lieutenant General Scott Barrier, welcome to National Security This Week. John, it's great to be here with you, and uh, thanks for having me. And where are you sitting this morning, sir? You and I are on Zoom, so we have an opportunity to see each other. Uh, but where are you sitting? Right, right. I'm in a, uh, I would say, an off, an offline conference room within the DIA headquarters we use for unclassified activities like this. Yeah, because most things that happen at the intelligence agencies are in the classified world, so jumping on a thing like Zoom in a skipped space is probably not a, an ideal thing to do, right? We found that, no, you're absolutely right. We found that during COVID, we needed to uh, to acquire a space like this so we could communicate with the workforce and, and do other things. So it's actually come in quite handy. It's probably a keeper for us. All right. Uh, General, you're the current director of the Defense Intelligence Agency. Can you please explain to our listeners what DIA is, how it fits into the Department of Defense? I, I'm sure most listeners have no idea how large DIA is as an agency, how many people work at the agency, let, let alone what the people at DIA do every day. Sure, happy happy to do that. So I'll, I'll just um, I'll start by saying we're a, we're a global organization, and at our core, I think we're a intelligence operations and all source analysis agency, meaning that we conduct intelligence operations and do um, all source uh, analysis. Um, about sixteen thousand five hundred people. Those are collectors, analysts, mission enablers, IT folks, data scientists. And uh, we're really we're really uh, postured around the globe, and I think uh, what makes us different than the other seventeen uh, intelligence agencies is this uh, global network that we have. So if you think about it, um, our defense attaché service puts military diplomats in 140 embassy locations with accreditation into 183. Those are 183 potential partnerships that we can take advantage of, and we have a great history with uh, with our defense attaché corps. Uh, we're also we're also embedded in the 11 combatant command joint intelligence operations centers. So all of those intel staffs in the combatant commands are, are comprised of DIA officers 
uh, that are around the globe on 24-7 watch uh, working with combatant commanders uh, for their needs. Uh, and, and General, if I may ask, so that, just to confirm, the, just the combatant commanders are like U.S. Indo-Pacific Command, Central Command, European Command, things like that, right? Correct. And also uh, U.S. Strategic Command, U.S. Special Operations Command. Yeah, thank you. Um, and, I, and I think the, the really interesting thing here is our history. So we were, we were formed, uh, we were conceived in 1960, but actually started operations in 1961. We gave the Secretary of Defense sort of a different intelligence view from what his Army Air Force and Navy and Marine Corps were giving him. And uh, our first baptism by fire was the, the Cuban uh, Missile Crisis there. And if you're in our museum on the first floor of the DI headquarters, you'll, you'll see all of that. Uh, but we truly, we truly are um, an all-source agency. And I always tell people that this is not your mom's DIA or this is not your dad's <laughs> DIA. I, I think the, the, the thing that's changed here in what the national defense strategy has given us is this notion of intelligence support to strategic competition. And, and so we're, uh, we're, we're on that march right now, and we've done some things differently here at DIA that I'm happy to talk about that uh, make us so different right now. So DIA headquarters is at Bowling Air Force Base in Washington, D.C. What, what other DIA you know, intelligence facilities fall under DIA's purview, not, not just the combatant commands at the Joint Intel Operations Centers? Right. So we, um, we say generally that about half of our workforce is uh, in the National Capital Region. That extends from Maryland to probably Charlottesville, and then at, at various loca locations and facilities. And then we have uh, we have our uh, Missile Space Intelligence Center down in Huntsville, Alabama. But then we have other operating bases in uh, in CONUS, uh, in Europe, in the Pacific, uh, that give us uh, unique insights and access to uh, to sources, which makes it uh, really unique and and interesting. I, you know, the uh, the workforce here at DIA, uh, seventy percent civilian. Uh, of those civilians, forty percent have military experience. And then we have 30%, which are which are military officers and NCOs and soldiers, airmen, sailors, Marines, Coast Guardsmen, and Guardians that are assigned uh, to DIA around the globe. So it's a really nice mix of civilian uh, and military, which uh, which really makes our mission fun and unique uh, for the Department of Defense. Yeah, you just mentioned Guardians. So the Space Force recently stood up. Uh, how, I mean, has it been a lot to deal with as you sort of integrate the Guardians into the DIA structure and support what Space Force does? So I think, I think we've had a longstanding uh, operation for, uh, for space and in support of space, really, for, for uh, Space Force, Spacecom. And we've, we've had a longstanding operation to monitor objects in space. And so that's one of the things that a lot of people don't know about us. Uh, so we've, we've had a very close relationship um, on that front. But I think that the stand-up of Space Force and really the development of their, of their intelligence, their service intelligence center, um, is, is really the newest um, injection, if you will, into, into the intelligence mission set here. And so we've, we've assisted Space Force in doing that, and uh, we continue to monitor their progress and help them along the way. As I understand it, that's the, is that the National Space Intelligence Center? Is that, is that a right, Pat? Uh, it will be it will be the National Space Intelligence Center and, and uh, closely closely aligned with uh, the National Air and Space Intelligence Center, which is the Service Intel Center. We we have a very close relationship with all those uh, Service Intel centers. In fact, we we are very close with them on on uh, what they produce, when they produce, how they produce it. And so, uh, this Defense Intelligence Enterprise gives us that access uh, to those intelligence centers, and we work very very closely with all of them. All right. Uh, so, for our audience, you're listening to National Security this week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Lieutenant General Scott Barrier, who's the director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, and we're discussing DIA's role in the U.S. intelligence community. 
Uh, General, how, how does DIA fit within the broader U.S. intelligence community? Perhaps you could highlight the specialty areas for the other USIC partners uh, and explain what niche areas uh, DIA fills in the overall USIC. Yeah, great, great question. So when I, when I think about all of the intelligence agencies, how we're structured, how we're organized, um, the kinds of training that we have, the kind of skill sets that we bring, it sounds odd, but we're probably most like the CIA. Uh, the difference is we're the defense intelligence agency and my boss is the secretary of defense and, and really the chairman of course the big boss is the president we all get that uh, we also have a very special relationship with avril haynes uh, our dni uh, but my direct boss in the pentagon is the honorable ron moultrie he's the undersecretary of defense for intelligence and he provides uh, the oversight for all of the defense uh, intelligence agencies what we call the, the combat support agencies so if you if you think about them it's dia nsa nga and nro um, it's really interesting because we have all grown up in the intelligence community together. And so the, the, the really neat thing is we all know each other and guess what? We all like each other. <laughs> and so when I think about, when I think about asymmetric advantages, the fact that we're all good friends and that we routinely talk, um, is really, really powerful for our nation, for the intelligence community as a whole. Um, our DNI has been superb along with honorable Moultrie and pulling us all together frequently, uh, to have discussions, which is, which is really great. But if you think, if you think about NRO, they're really responsible for uh, building the space architecture and building building our satellites and, and getting them on orbit uh, to do what they need to do. The National Geospatial Agency, uh, led by uh, Vice Admiral Trey Whitworth, really responsible for all of the geospatial intelligence uh, that we bring to bear here uh, in the agency. The National Security Agency, uh, uh, General Paul Nakasone, uh, bringing all things uh, cyber and uh, cryptology to uh, to the nation. Uh, to have a better understanding about intentions and what's happening. Um, all of that is used by DIA in our all-source analysis, which is foundational to everything we do. And if you think about the mission set for DIA, that, uh, John, that hasn't changed uh, since our inception in 1961. We are responsible for foundational military intelligence around the globe. We have to be the, the uh, master sense makers of what foreign militaries are doing, what their capabilities are, what their intentions are, and what their doctrine is. So that we can bring that to the Secretary of Defense and the Chairman for decision advantage in a timely way uh, that helps them with this strategic competition problem that we have. And how does DIA uh, sort of connect with the other the other members of the U.S. intelligence community that are that are not inside the Department of Defense? Sure. So a very very close relationship with INR at State. Uh, our partners at the FBI are very, very close. In fact, in many of the uh, offices and locations where these these uh, different agencies have operations ongoing. Many times you'll find officers from DIA there or officers from the National Geospatial Agency. So the connections uh, are deep. Um, they're, across, they're across the globe and uh, the communication between all of the chiefs, deputies, um, operations officers is really, really tight. And I think we have to be. And that really starts at the top with uh, Avril Haines' leadership flows down through the department through Honorable Moultrie uh, to all of us. And so, you know, our expectation is that uh, with transparency and with uh, with connectivity that we're talking uh, all the time, and we do that. Uh, and General Barry, I'd like to drill down a little bit more into the work at DIA specifically. Uh, the major intelligence agencies often have a specialty area of excellence. You mentioned it uh, just a minute ago. NSA uh, focus, focuses very, very heavily on uh, signals intelligence uh, with a cyber component. Are there any specialty areas at DIA you'd like to highlight for our listeners? Yeah, there are a number of areas that I'd like to highlight. And probably when people think of DI, they, they sort of think about the human intelligence collection mission that we have. Uh, we do that We do that in three ways with our defense attache service with those military diplomats. 
Uh, we do it with our defense clandestine service, which brings us special titles and authorities to do intelligence collection. We do that with our defense debriefing service. Uh, we want to talk to people. We want to establish relationships. You know, human intelligence is the oldest form of intelligence collection, and, uh, and it will last beyond uh, what technology can give us because relationships and talking to people and understanding what people think and what they know is really, really key. So whether you're recruiting sources or just having a conversation, uh, these things are really, really important to DI. And we've done it very, very well for, for uh, many, many years. And, and uh, we, we, uh, we hold that, that mission set dear to us. But we also do all-source analysis. And if you think about what we bring to the Department of Defense, it's the clusing of all of that other information out there from those agencies that I talked about to give a full all-source uh, picture to the Department to the Secretary and to the Chairman. Uh, which is really, really key. And, and over time, and as the agency has grown and developed, we've done some really, really uh, interesting things and, and other, other things that have, hold on one second, we've got, a, we've got an alarm going off here. I'm just going to mute for one second. Yep. Sounds like we might have a, a little bit of a fire drill or something happening there at DIA headquarters. <laughs> uh, for our listeners, uh, just uh, briefly, we, we are, uh, this is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Uh, we, our guest today is Lieutenant General Scott Barrier, the director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, and we're discussing DIA's role in the U.S. intelligence community. And uh, unfortunately, the general is not in control of when alarms go off at the building, and as soon as that alarm finishes uh, going off, uh, he'll come off of uh, mute, and we'll be able to continue our discussions today. Uh, for our, the background for our audience, the Defense Intelligence Agency, or DIA, is one of the intelligence agencies that's uh, inside the Department of Defense. And uh, the, the other major intelligence agencies that are also inside the Department of Defense include the National Security Agency, or NSA, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, or NGA, and then as General Scott Barrier mentioned a little while ago, NRO, the National Reconnaissance Office, is another major component part of that, uh, focusing significantly on space operations, creating the satellites that we need to do technical collection from space. How are we doing, General Barrier? Is that alarm still, still going on? So uh, there's a little announcement going on in the background, but I think I think we're okay. If it's all right with you, John, I'd like to continue talking about some of the more unique things we do in our director for analysis. Please do, sir. Yes. So as I as I as I look at my my organizational chart here uh, within the director of analysis, we do some really important things for the department. I think the first thing I'd like to highlight is the Defense Counterproliferation Office. Uh, this organization really tries to understand what what uh, nuclear capacities and capabilities are. Uh, and nations around the globe and keep an eye on that. Uh, much like our Defense uh, Combating Terrorism Center, DCTC, which has been involved in every aspect of, uh, of uh, counterterrorism operations since 9-11, um, an office that has kept watch on, you name the group, uh, and they are on it, and they're still doing that. Uh, we, do the, uh, we do the machine-assisted analytic rapid repository system, which is a replacement for something known as the Military Intelligence Integrated Database. Uh, what we know about installations and militaries around the globe really really facilitated by that and then one of the one of the really interesting things especially in COVID, is the national center for medical intelligence which is responsible in the department of defense for understanding pandemics and giving warning to the department on uh, on certain uh, medical things happening and then and then the last one i'll highlight in the director for analysis is really the uh, underground facility uh, analysis center what we call ufac understanding all those developing underground command and control centers, weapon storage facilities around the globe, you name the country, uh, we try to do our best to, uh, to understand that. And then as we, as we move across this, uh, this, this organization at DIA, I wanna talk a little bit about our integrated intelligence centers. So we have the America's Trans-Regional Threat Center, which covers down in this hemisphere, 
uh, whether that be for strategic competition in Russia and China or, or whether it's a counter drug or supporting uh, homeland security on what they're trying to do uh, with, uh, with uh, migration and immigration. Uh, we have the East Eurasia Regional Center uh, covers all things uh, Europe, and you can imagine how active they have been <laughs> yeah, in exactly. stand up uh, of, of, a, of a crisis group related to the Ukraine. Very, very, uh, very, very busy place. We have the uh, Indo-Pacific uh, Regional Center right now, which watches everything in the, in the Pacific region. And then we have the Middle East uh, and Africa Regional Center. So keeping an eye on, on CENTCOM and AFRICOM uh, from here at DI. And the last, the last integrated center that we have just stood up, and I'm happy to announce publicly, is the China uh, mission group or or the CMG that will that will take all of the agency's capacities and capabilities, put it in one location uh, for support to the department's strategic competition issues uh, with China. So we're very very excited for that. And remember, I said earlier, this is not your mom or dad's DIA. I think the thing that's really really new besides the China mission group is uh, is another office called the Deputy Director for Global Integration or DDGI. This is the office and officer who's responsible um, in the way a J3 would, if you're, if you're familiar with the military, sort of an operations officer view, uh, the way that uh, we, we collaborate, coordinate, and integrate all of our capabilities that the agency has towards uh, strategic competition. So we're excited about that. That office is about a little over a year old right now and, and uh, really instrumental uh, to stand up for strategic competition and also instrumental in the stand up of the China Mission Group. All of those regional intelligence centers uh, work for our DDGI. So if I could just uh, drill down a little bit more even. Uh, so DIA has a strategic intelligence level mission to support policymakers primarily in the D.C. area. But you also have a mission in supporting the combatant commanders for theater operations and even down to the tactical level when troops are engaged in combat. Is that is that right? Do I have that right, General? We absolutely do. I think people people have this notion that DI is purely for strategic intelligence to support the department's policy in planning, and that's that's true. We we do, but if you think about um, our embeds into the combatant command, so think of what's happening in U.S. European command right now. Um, we very very rapidly uh, move to support the the UCOM J2, who's an active duty Army Major General, and his needs to be able to help his commander understanding what was happening in the Russia Ukraine crisis and uh, the ability to surge intelligence support to that theater. Uh, for a variety of missions has, has been ongoing. And so we, we do find ourselves frequently talking uh, tactical level intelligence detail, uh, not, only, not only with the European uh, uh, commanders there, uh, combatant commanders and service uh, commanders, but also with uh, the chairman and secretary on a daily basis. So from, from troops in contact to, uh, to policies affecting sharing and everything else, we're, we're kind of in the middle of all of that. So it sounds to me also like the there's an increasing intelligence partner collaboration that, that occurs uh, between the United States Armed Forces, our allies, and, and other partner countries uh, around the world. And that, that, I think, has become a high priority for DIA, unless I have that wrong. Uh, can you discuss why this, uh, this collaboration, this partnership with other nations is so important and how DIA is enriching those partnerships? John, it's really, really important, and uh, we are all about partnerships, and the, and the NDS really directs us and says that we can't do this alone, and so we've got to have great partners. Uh, several years ago, uh, we stood up the Deputy Director for Commonwealth Integration, or DDCI. Uh, that, is a, uh, that is a general officer from one of our 5i partner nations, would be it Australia, UK, uh, Canada, or New Zealand, who, who really helps me um, integrate the, the power of everything that we're doing uh, and the power of what the partners are bringing to be able to orchestrate that, not only in the Five Eyes, but also other partnerships. 
And so within our DDGI construct, we've created a, a partner mission integration center. And so for the first time at DI, John, what we're trying to do is to, is to put an umbrella around all partnerships, whether they be foreign partnerships with foreign partners, whether they be academic partnerships with uh, universities across, across the country, think tank partnerships with the great think tanks that we have across the country and, and our defense industrial base and sensitive relationship partners uh, out there. And so, and so if you think about it, you have a partnership common operating picture that allows us to evaluate the, the effectiveness of those partnerships, but really where we need to invest more or, or perhaps decrease because we're not getting the most out of it. So for the first time we have this, uh, this partnership common operating picture, which, which allows me to press the throttle when I need to pull back when I need to, but, but generally speaking in the wake of what has happened in, uh, in Russia, Ukraine, and as it, as applies to uh, Chinese encroachment in the, in the Indo-Pacific, um, we feel like we're getting more partners all the time who want to talk about these things. Okay. Could you give, uh, so I know when I was assigned at U.S. Special Operations Command many years ago, uh, Central Command was also co-located there at MacDill Air Force Base. And even back then, uh, we had a lot of partner nations who had established offices right there at the CENTCOM headquarters. Uh, so is that kind of thing happening now routinely across all the combatant commands? And DIA is probably building relationships with a lot of those partner nations, those coalition partners that are at the uh, various combatant commands. Is that kind of how that's working? Well, certainly, you know, the coalition village at CENTCOM uh, was, I think, was a bit of a one-off um, after 9-11 because of that, of that terrible event and the crisis that emerged after that. Um, our partners wanted to be involved in that. And so if you think about, um, the, the, you know, the back end of the CENTCOM headquarters where, where we had coalition village, that, that was unique and different. And, and while uh, that is still at CENTCOM to a degree, I think, I think uh, technology has brought us to another level. And so it's really, how do we connect with our partners virtually and constantly uh, so that we can share the most important information with them that they need to know. And so really for DIA, um, it's, about, it's about this connectivity that you and I have right now, but in a secure way. Uh, but it's also, it's also about understanding what capabilities they bring and what capabilities uh, DIA can bring. So if you think about my, my authorities and capability, maybe it makes a trail. But if I grab a partner, uh, they have authorities and capability, that's another trail. Then, then you have kind of a highway of capabilities. And we, we have to think differently about how we operationalize these partnerships and what we can actually do with them. Because I think, I think we've uh, sort of underinvested in that. And, and to date, you know, we've talked a lot about sharing information and doing analysis together, and that's great. But what kinds of intelligence operations could we do together? That's really the question. And that's really what we're trying to answer. And then I, if you take a look at the U.S. European Command that sort of overlaps nicely with NATO, the NATO structure that exists out there, and uh, the commander of U.S. European Command is also uh, dual-hatted as the military commander for the NATO forces. Uh, obviously, you're supporting uh, the commander of U.S. European Command, uh, the J-2 over there, uh, you just mentioned a little while ago. Uh, but there's got to also be a pretty strong connection between DIA and our NATO partners over in the theater uh, in, in Europe. I mean, how does that work? Could you, could you sort of explain that to so, the audience? So we do, we do have an office that uh, interacts with, with NATO on their turf uh, on a routine basis every single day. So I feel like we have very, very close partnerships within NATO. Um, we, we often have regional conferences with uh, certain NATO partners, depending on where it's at. And, you know, when you think about uh, Sweden and Finland becoming, uh, potentially becoming the newest uh, NATO partners, those are two, um, two partnerships that we're going to upgun a little bit. Uh, to make sure that we understand their capabilities and what it is they want from from DIA. So NATO NATO is an awesome alliance, and it's only it's only gotten stronger since the Russia Ukraine crisis. And so I, I don't think Putin ever thought uh, that would come, <laughs> but it has solidified and, and galvanized NATO, which is pretty cool. And we want to be in the middle of that. 
And we're in the middle of it with uh, with uh, General Cavoli, who's the, the US UCOM commander and uh, and uh, the commander in shape. And so he he gets it. He is uh, he is a huge intelligence fan. And so he's he's very close with the He's very close with his J2 team. And, and uh, we think that we're right in sync with him right now. For our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Lieutenant General Scott Barrier, the director of the Defense Intelligence Agency. Uh, so, General Barrier, how have new technologies impacted the work at DIA? And in other words, uh, what role does something like artificial intelligence, which is really machine learning, we're not really at in, in true artificial intelligence yet, but really advanced machine learning, uh, how, how, what role is that playing in supporting the analytical work at, at DIA, or even the processing of uh, all of the information that comes in and on a technical means? How, how many of your analysts are looking at cyber-related topics every day? And could you talk a little bit about the real-time collaboration between agencies and, and allies uh, because, enhanced dramatically because of the advances in technologies? Yeah, I, I, th- I think this, uh, we, we could dedicate a whole day and have a conference <laughs> uh, on this topic with, uh, with uh, uh, big data, uh, how, we, how we handle that, how we, how we take advantage of it, really how we infuse that into our analysis. You know, in the old days, stubby pencils, card catalogs, and, and keeping, keeping records uh, manually. Um, and, and to a degree, with our, with our most current uh, database, this thing I mentioned earlier called MIDB, the Military Intelligence Integrated Database. So think, think, of, a, think of an Excel spreadsheet with a description and maybe a four or five-year-old image um, to give us an insight into what's happening at a particular location around the world. Uh, that, that is not good enough. Uh, we're not going to be able to, to survive in a high-end, fast-paced uh, potential combat environment with that, that sort of database. So um, where we really invested in this is this thing called MARS, the Machine Assisted Rapid Repository System, which, which takes all of that MIDB analog stuff and infuses it into a new live database, um, interactive maps, um, data that is in real time ingested into a system so that we know what's happening on the ground at any given time. Uh, that data is out there. So the question for us is, um, how, do we, how do we safely acquire it? Um, how do we uh, tag it and label it? And how do we put it into these files so that they're easily accessible by anybody who needs it in real time? Whether that's for situational awareness or that's for a future targeting operation, it has to be, it has to be that good and that on time. And so the technologies uh, that we are seeking are, are really uh, surrounded by the, the ability to acquire big data uh, from any location. So, so think about big data from space. Uh, think about big data from commercial vendors. Think about big data wherever it comes from. And how do we assimilate that into, into our databases so that we have the most up-to-date real-time live uh, environment for our analysts to be able to collaborate in? And, and we've had some success with this. As you, you might imagine, uh, the Russia-Ukraine crisis has given us some reps and sets on, on how to track forces and how to do things. It's been really, really interesting and it is uh, it has advanced our understanding of the capabilities uh, to a point where we'll be able to feel much faster uh, the new capability coming. Uh, do you see a big value in in sort of the commercial contractors and what they're providing uh, these days in the way of data or uh, commercial imagery that kind of thing? Has that become a big part of what DIA does? A- absolutely. I think I think uh, Trey Whitworth at NGA has the lead with Chris Scalise at NRO and how we how we corral the the plethora of uh, of commercial um, satellite imagery, if you will, uh, to be able to infuse in our products. So we, we do use that, but we rely on them to be able to manage that uh, for us. But it is, it is really uh, interesting when I think about um, the rules that have to be put in place and, and the ability for us to make sure that we're not getting ripped off, right? So, <laughs> so uh, a couple of years ago, we, we established this thing called the Open Source Intelligence Center, the OSIC and DIA 
Uh, the CIA has a, a very similar capability that's been around longer, but with my defense intelligence enterprise management authorities for open source intelligence, uh, what we're doing is kind of setting the rules of the road in terms of policy, uh, trade craft, uh, making sure that we can catalog all this commercial data so that if NGA buys the same thing as DI, that we're both paying the same best price that we can, or if the army is buying a, a data set, we want to make sure that the army is getting the best price that they can. And so putting, putting this bound, if you will, this, this, these boundaries around this commercial data so that we, the Department of Defense can do the very best for the money that it has is, is really, really important. And, uh, and more, to, more to come on that because it's going to be huge in the future. You know, I, I retired uh, from the Navy uh, 11 and a half years ago. And what you were just describing to me at DIA, because that was my last assignment, was as Naval Attaché at the U.S. Embassy in Helsinki, Finland. Uh, I, I think if I walked into a DIA space today, an analytical space, I don't think I would <laughs> recognize anything anymore. <laughs> Sounds like all the technology is completely revolutionary uh, c compared to what, <laughs> what I had even 12 years ago. Well, uh, certainly, certainly the, the analysts are, are going to be really, really savvy. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, dinosaurs, dinosaurs like me, I, I understand the concept, but maybe maybe don't have the speed that they do to be able to access the data. But it's really this is really interesting. And uh, a, a great hero of mine, Lieutenant General Sam Wilson, who was the, the director of DI in 1976, said that 70% uh, of what the agency was doing in 1976, 70% was was from open source. So if you think about it now, that's just greatly expanded and increased, probably 90%. Um, but the, the key is how do we how do we infuse that with a really sensitive data and how do we make sense of all of that uh, for the department? Anecdotally, Sam Sam Wilson was a plank holder in the Merrill's Marauder as, as a private. Oh, and he, wow. and he rose to the rank <laughs> of a, a three-star general as a director of DIA. So a really, a really talented individual and uh, somebody who, who we think pretty highly of around here. Uh, so, General, obviously, uh, intelligence analysis, uh, I don't know if you know who Mark uh, Lowenthal is, but uh, he used to say that uh, the intelligence analysis piece, that's the mainstay of why we have intelligence. Uh, DIA being an all-source uh, intelligence analysis uh, agency, uh, you obviously have a whole bunch of intelligence analysts. Uh, could you talk a little bit about the career paths for intelligence analysts at the Defense Intelligence Agency? Yeah, so it's a it's a career field that that we rely on here, and, and there are a lot of things to do in DI, but analysis is kind of the, the bread and butter. And so, um, you know, we don't we don't just recruit one flavor, if of you will, of, of talent. We're looking we're looking for a wide swath. Certainly, we want we want STEM kids uh, coming out of college that have maybe a data science background. Uh, certainly has a need for that. But I'm a history major. We have history majors here. We recruit poli sci majors. We recruit regional experts. And, you know, the coin of the realm is somebody who is um, intellectually curious, um, somebody who will be rigorous with their trade craft and make sure that they double, triple check their work uh, before we before we go to uh, publishing. And so, um, you know, for our analysts at DI, I'm really I'm really proud of the work that they're doing. And through crisis after crisis, what they demonstrate to me is just a commitment to excellence and the fact that they want to be here and they uh, they're staying late. They're coming in early. Uh, they're on the target, they're on the mission, and uh, they're, they're making our nation proud every, with everything that they're doing. And as I understand it, in the intelligence community today, we like to get a lot of cross-training. So intelligence analysts that might start out at DIA might not stay at the headquarters throughout their career. They might get the chance to bounce around to the theater, join Intel Operations Centers, or even uh, move across the intelligence agency to uh, some of the other partner agencies for a, a tour or two. Is that is that right? Yeah, it's really it's really unique here at DI. Now we we do the, the entire IC has a joint duty assignment program, which is pretty cool, and allows you to go from one agency to the next for a for a two to three year assignment, and then, and then come back, bring all that experience back with you, and and enrich your own agency with that. So that's a great program. But but even within at DIA, 
there is the ability to uh, to be mobile when you want to be mobile. Um, what we call the global officer, somebody that will uh, come to headquarters, work in the director of uh, uh, analysis or director of operations, and then perhaps move out to a combatant command or another platform that we have, and then come back to the agency, and then and then move again for uh, for a kind of a rounding out assignment, broadening assignment. Um, and there's this, uh, I, I think, an internal dialogue within the agency about uh, subject matter expert uh, and, a, and, a, and a global officer that gets around. And I think, I think you can have both. So let's say that you're an, you're an expert um, on Chinese missile technology and, and employment doctrine. You could be, you could be a SME here um, at DI, but you could still go out to the Indo-PACOM J2 team and work that target or a similar target there and come back. And so there are, there are ways to to be global, to broaden, and still and still stay within your subject matter expert comfort zone. And, and the pinnacle for somebody who's on an Intel uh, analyst uh, career track, uh, if they move up at the at DIA uh, or or the defense intelligence uh, construct as a whole, or a, more broadly across the national intelligence community, they they get some special title, uh, sort of take over leadership responsibility for across uh, either defense intelligence or across the national intelligence community for specific problem sets that are important to the president. Is that right? Sort of, sort of a defense right, intelligence at the, at the, officer? Yeah, at the, DNI, yeah, at the DNI level, we have uh, national intelligence managers for, for various uh, for various things. That's certainly a pinnacle. Within within uh, the analytical career field um, at DI, I would say being a deputy J2, deputy intelligence officer at a, at a combatant command, is, is probably one of those jobs, coin of the realm, really, really important job. You got to make sure that that you have your act together with uh, the target set that you're working on, but also have the personality to be able to interact with the J2 and the combatant commander. Sometimes that's not always easy, and sometimes you don't <laughs> find that in the same individual. So, so uh, you know, this ability to be aggressive, but also be uh, someone who can listen really well and and communicate really well is key. And for all of our analysts. Um, if you can't write, if you can't brief, uh, that's that's really kind of the going in position that you have to develop your your tradecraft on, so that you communicate what that whatever that message is, and whatever people need to know. If you can't communicate, then it's really really going to be tough. And so for the introverts that come in, I love them. I'll take introverts, but we're gonna we're gonna make a bit of an extrovert out of you. <laughs> I I know exactly how that works because I am a very very much an introverted person. Uh, General, thank you for covering how DIA fits into the Department of Defense and the broader U.S. intelligence community. Uh, if it's okay with you, I'd like to turn to what's happening in the world today. Sort of tap into your expertise as a career intelligence officer in the United States Army. And I, if I could, I'd like to begin uh, with the topic that I'm that you were just mentioning a little while that gets 24/7 coverage at DIA, and that's the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the situation in Ukraine. Uh, what can you share with our listeners about what the analysts at DIA think the Russians have planned for their ongoing campaign in Ukraine? Obviously, not, nothing classified, but what what the interpretations are that uh, that you feel you could talk about here publicly? Uh, any insights you'd be willing to share with us? Sure. Uh, before before I do that, though, I think I, I think I need to take you on a, a bit of a spin first. And so, absolutely, <laughs> when, I, I, when I entered the army uh, in 1984, it was this uh, bipolar world of the Soviet Union, and the United States. My first assignment as an army military intelligence officer was as a second lieutenant assigned to the 172nd Infantry Brigade in Alaska. Our mission was to defend the Alaska pipeline. At the time, uh, I thought that was kind of a ridiculous mission set because the thinking was that Soviet Spetsnaz troops. Would uh, would parachute in to destroy and damage that pipeline. Um, that is kind of real today. Yes, it <laughs> so is. It's, it's come it's come full circle here, and and it's really interesting to watch what's happened with uh, with China and Russia, and how well crafted our our national defense strategy is uh, on on these problems. But if even if you think about that, my 38 year career, 
um, after the wall came down, we were sort of in the army of the in-between. So 1990 to 2000, we trained a lot. So did the Navy, so did the Air Force. And we got really, really good at the war we weren't going to fight. And then 9-11 happens and we go through the trauma of a 20-year counter-terrorist fight where it's, um, hey, you train with the unit, you deploy with the unit, you, know, you come back and you start that cycle all again and there's loss and there's, there's uh, commitment. Um, that actually made our military, I think, very, very good. And so, um, you know, as we, as we have um, come around to this notion of, of strategic competition, I think we're ready for it. And as I think about um, what has happened in, in Russia, Ukraine, it's really, it's really kind of put us to the test. And if you, if you think about the beginning of the conflict, uh, DIA with our other IC partners came out very, very early and said this was going down, it was going to happen. And then uh, our president made a very brave decision to say, okay, we, we need to tell the world about this. And so um, policies rapidly changed uh, to be able to support that. And, and I remember those early days, policies were changing pretty quickly. And suddenly people were going, oh, okay, we get it. Uh, we now understand uh, what you're talking about. So in terms of intelligence as a tool, um, as a weapon, very, very valuable and in, in how we got our partners thinking about this. So first insight is um, rapid sharing, uh, rapid policy development and change is a good thing. Probably better if you have it before you need it, but um, in, at its best, you know, at its best before you need it. Uh, but also the ability to to modify and change on the fly, um, really, really important because that allowed us to do things with our NATO partners and also allowed us to do things with our Ukrainian partners. Uh, so very, very interesting. So we did great on that aspect of predicting uh, what was going to go down when it was going to go down. But I, but I think. Um, some, some of our biases got in the way of, uh, of how we analyzed what might come out of it. And so, uh, you know, if you think about the, the Russian army, the, the New Look Army, I remember the army did a study called the, the New Gen Russian Warfare uh, Model, where we studied um, how Putin had invested in his army. That army actually looked pretty good. I mean, they weren't 10 feet tall or anything, but it, it looked like he had made wide, wise investments. His, all of his officers go to the Friends Academy. You know, from post-World War II on, they, they took uh, what was Blitzkrieg doctrine and turned it into what we called airline battle doctrine. They understood the employment of intelligence, reconnaissance, surveillance, and fires. They knew how to do that with command and control. Um, we, we, uh, we lost the bubble on them after 9-11, and we probably weren't paying as much attention as we should. So our biases played in when we thought how this fight would go. And uh, we probably didn't understand well enough uh, the kind of grit that our Ukrainian partners really, really had. And so on one hand, did really, really well um, predicting when um, maybe maybe we could have done better on predicting how it would come out. I think the, the interesting thing is the Russians really planned for an occupation, not an invasion. And so all of those all of those things that maybe they understood about war fighting, they thought they were just going to roll in and uh, and just just, you know, topple the government and, and take over. Didn't didn't go like that. And the Ukrainians had had a very different plan. Um, now, we've been instrumental with the Ukrainians, Ukrainians in, in helping them, not only with material support, uh, building the moral support uh, that most of the world has in support of their cause, but also with the information sharing that we're doing with them through our, our European command partners and even back here um, at DI. So that, that is a huge uh, success story. As, as the fight has, has played out, uh, the Russians um, overcommitted without planning, and now they find themselves uh, in a bit of a bind. And so they've, they've lost some territory. The Ukrainians have gone on a counteroffensive, and I think you know the the latest on this uh, this partial mobilization, really, really to me dictates what a bind uh, Putin is in. Um, he didn't go to a full mobilization. He's not called or he's not changed the name of the special military operation. 
And at the same time, they're, they're working these sham referendums. And so, you know, thinking about this, uh, perhaps Putin is like thinking, okay, how do I, how do I best salvage this? And it might be call the referendum and then, and then hunker down. We, we don't know. Um, certainly we're watching it really, really carefully with Ukrainian progress and what the Russians are, are bringing in. We, we're not really sure how, how soon they'll be able to bring in this, this increase in manpower that they have, uh, but we're really watching it carefully. And, and uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't bode well for the winter uh, for, for either force when I look at it. And you mentioned uh, a little while ago uh, that your first assignment was up there in, in, nor- in the northern part of Alaska <laughs> protecting the oil pipeline. Uh, just in the news a couple of days ago, we had uh, something happen with the Nord Stream uh, natural gas pipeline that goes from Russia to Germany and provides so much of uh, the energy needed to heat homes all across Europe in the wintertime. Uh, and any thoughts on what happened with that? Uh, I won't ask you to, to reveal anything, but uh, I can see you're laughing here as I'm asking this question. But it's a really interesting uh, question. You know, what happened? And if somebody did do something, why did they do it? And who was it that did it? Uh, any no, thoughts that's, uh, on John, that? John, that, that, that is a great question. I mean, I think, think about the irony of my statement about the Alaska pipeline in Alaska and, and the Nord Stream pipeline that's pushing natural gas to Europe. Um, I, I think uh, too early to tell early days in this analysis, but uh, you know, there are theories out there, so we'll, just, we'll watch to see what, what plays out here and, and, and uh, what comes out in the public on that. And I know, General, because we're, I mean, a DIA, you, you're focusing on really important strategic questions. Uh, Putin has uh, has sort of subtly, or, or maybe not so subtly, talked a little bit about uh, nuclear weapons. Uh, how much of a concern, f- from your perspective, is is this threat from Putin on the battle space in Ukraine? I have a tendency to listen to him when he talks. Um, he has a, a bunch of uh, subordinate leaders in various positions that are that are talking about this. So I think I think we have to take it seriously. Uh, DIA um, has this as a priority to uh, to look at, to analyze, um, to understand uh, escalation here in this conflict and what that means not only for the United States but what also it means for our partners and partners in NATO, but also also Russia. So something we're very concerned about. Um, to not be concerned, I think would be a little um, foolhardy here. So I think uh, we, we have to be concerned, uh, talk about it, and, and gain the insights that we can on, on their intent. We understand what their doctrine is, um, but, but uh, this, the, the way this conflict has played out, uh, they really haven't followed their doctrine. And so that's what makes it kind of the wild card here. So we will be watching very, very carefully with our partners. And this is where, this is where our NATO partners can give us insight as well. Uh, they, they live there. They, they understand the Russians as well or better than we do. And so certainly understanding uh, how they see it is going to be really important for us. You know, your uh, your assessment, self-assessment of DIA and and the broader intelligence community, taking a look at the Russian military, assuming that they would uh, be more effective than they were when they first launched that invasion. Uh, I actually had Lieutenant General Ben Hodges on the show about six weeks into the invasion. Uh, For our listeners, he was the former commander of U.S. Army forces in Europe, and uh, he was... uh, just fantastic in his discussion about all the ways in which we sort of, uh, I guess, uh, misinterpreted what Russian capabilities were really going to be. Uh, we thought with these, uh, you know, the the investment that Putin and, and the Russian uh, political leadership had made uh, into modernizing their military, uh, creating these uh, battalion tactical groups, training at a smaller unit level. Uh, all of those things would be more effective than they turned out to be. Uh, the, the logistics supply lines were just horrible. The, the small unit leadership, even the senior leadership in the military operation was terrible. It turned out that the quality of the equipment that had pr- been produced inside Russia was terrible. 
uh, all across the board, it was just it was just bad. Uh, this partial call-up that uh, Putin is ordering, you just mentioned it's hard to know how long it's going to take to to get those 300,000 people or so that some have former military service, most don't probably, uh, to get them trained up and into the fight. Does it make a difference that he's done this, considering the lack of equipment or quality equipment or uh, poor supply lines? Uh, have, have they solved these other problems? I mean, do, are we seeing any of this uh, in the Ukraine uh, fight right now? I think I think those are really those are really key questions. You know, the the number three hundred thousand is is really debatable, and then his ability to equip that force is is another question. So you know, the ability to have this you know to declare partial mobilization, put those forces into the field with kit um, is is another matter altogether. Look, he's committed he's committed a large uh, part of his ground army to this fight. Uh, much of it has been destroyed uh, by by uh, Ukrainian fires and and good solid uh, planning and operations on their part. So it remains to be seen how quickly how quickly he can do that. Uh, certainly, they, you know there there are stocks uh, from the old Soviet days uh, that are that are sitting around in boneyards. Um, certainly, some of that stuff could be made uh, to be operational. How quickly they can they can move uh, maintenance teams to that and, and get it uh, repaired and move move to uh, Ukraine is another story altogether. But when I when I think about when I think about the biases in our view uh, of the Russian army, you know think think about the training that we go through as a military. It doesn't matter what service you're in. In the Army, the Crucible is going to the National Training Center, the Joint Readiness Training Center, the Maneuver Training Center at Hohenfels. And that is, uh, that is a force-on-force -force free play uh, that, just, that, that just comes out naturally. You either win or you lose. And, uh, and if you lose, it's, a, it's an AAR in an auditorium. And it's, it's pointed out very harshly what, what commanders, what staff officers uh, fail to learn and, and do. Um, I think their training is probably really scripted. I think we, we thought that they were better. Um, because we train, we train that way. We think all armies train that way, but it turns out they, they didn't. Uh, so they, they had the material, uh, they had the leaders, but they didn't have the small unit leaders and they didn't put it together. I think, I think really their failure is a, is a failure to plan, uh, which, which, uh, you know, every plan, uh, fails on first contact, but if you know, <laughs> if you don't start out with the plan, it's really going to go, it's really going to go bad quickly. Yeah. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Lieutenant General Scott Barrier. He's the director of the Defense Intelligence Agency. Uh, Lieutenant General Barrier, I'd like to turn to China, if I could. We have about uh, 14 minutes left. Uh, plenty of time to talk about important topics. Uh, some of our combat leaders and, and policymakers believe 2027 is a critical year for China to decide whether or not to attempt to seize, to seize Taiwan by force. Uh, how do you and the analysts at DIA see the China-Taiwan situation, and, and what Chinese capabilities most concern you? So, hey, great, great question, and sort of the topic uh, of the hour, if not the week, if not the year. Um, I, I have a tendency to listen to Xi Jinping when he when he speaks, and if he is if he's talked about reunification of Taiwan, and he's he's told his military to be ready by 2027, I, I take him uh, at his word. And from what we have seen about uh, their developments um, in every warfighting domain, whether that's space, cyber, ground, air, maritime, they've expanded rapidly since 1990. Um, there are some really interesting charts out there that, that show this, this rapid growth and how they can influence within the first island chain, how they can influence within the second island chain. And uh, their capacity and capability is growing. And so I think this discussion about 2027 is, is really key for us. I think the issue is what lessons um, are, are the is the PLA learning from all of this with Russia and Ukraine? Yep. Um, how the how the world has kind of coalesced around the Ukrainian cause, and what does that mean uh, for an attempt uh, by by the PRC to take Taiwan? 
we don't know the answers to those questions yet because I think I think the Chinese they're, they're, it, it takes them a while to assimilate these lessons and learn. We would hope that the lesson that they would take is probably not a good idea to do this by force. That uh, that the economic blows, uh, that the uh, the military blows, no matter where they come from, um, would would perhaps uh, limit their their ability and appetite to to do this. And so um, it'll be it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Let's let's not let's not kid ourselves though. They have grown. Uh, some pretty significant military capability. Um, you know, I think about what they've developed in space, what they can do in cyber, um, how their Navy has developed, what they're doing with their their uh, higher gen uh, aircraft right now. They're they're getting ready for something. And if you look at their capabilities, I always I always think about the Chinese in this um, this uh, three stranded cable. Right, uh, one cable is this uh, political strategy that she has had in his time and tenure where he's been able to do the things that he wants to do politically, put the people in place that he needs uh, to continue to control. He's got this economic strategy formerly known as the, the Belt Road Initiative, which has sort of spread his economy out and it's grown their own economy um, in ways that are, are sometimes uh, nefarious, um, sometimes not great for, for host countries. And then, and then he's had this, uh, this military strategy, which has, has created this, this larger military force that he has that is becoming more capable all the time. But when I think about that cable, that cable is wrapped in the sheath, and that and that sheath is the uh, what I have said is the greatest intellectual theft of property in the history of, of mankind. And so, if you if you think about it, um, whole of government approach to to uh, espionage and stealing of secrets, um, and and that is not a secret. I think that's a pretty well known fact. And so, we've got to get smart about protecting our networks, uh, doing things uh, better, faster, and safer uh, in cyber. Not only with the Department of Defense, but also. Uh, also with our defense industrial base and protecting protecting the information that we have. So the uh, Chinese Communist Party is about to have uh, their next uh, party Congress, I guess, here in mid-October, and uh, Xi Jinping is looking at probably, almost assuredly at this point, getting appointed for an unprecedented, unprecedented third uh, five-year term as as president. Uh, so, uh, I mean, what do you make? What do you make of that? I mean, he's going to cement his control over all of these things that you've just been talking about. Does that make things more likely to go badly for the China-Taiwan situation? Uh, are, are, is, I mean, uh, is the U.S. heading for conflict with, with China? Uh, or, or is there still a way to avoid that uh, through diplomacy, from your perspective? I, I always think that uh, diplomacy and talking are better than, uh, than uh, fighting. But l- listen, you know, the, 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 the party Congress is going to happen. I think, I think the, the thing that's different that he probably didn't count on was uh, how this Russia-Ukraine thing uh, panned out. And so I think he's got to be very, very careful about how he messages to the party. What is this relationship with, with uh, Russia right now, and, and where does it go in the future? And so if you think, if you think about it, they, there have been a lot of statements in, in the recent past about how close that relationship is. Uh, my, my sensing is that there's a little bit of frustration on the, on the PRC side about how the fight's going and uh, wishing that it would kind of be over. And, and, and really, when you just the, the fact that we're having this conversation about how this could affect 2027 in Taiwan is a conversation that uh, Xi Jinping would rather us not have. That's right. <laughs> um, and, and, and so I, I think uh, it's it's going to be it's going to be a little different, and it's going to come out a little differently than what what she wanted it. So we'll we'll wait for uh, for the results of that conference. Um, it's going to be interesting. You know, if you if you've seen politically lately, um, President Putin is uh, is taking it on the chin a little bit uh, with some criticism there. So um, he's got a little domestic problem at home, especially with the uh, with the military recall here and. And uh, we'll, we'll see where it goes. Yeah, and uh, this is another thing that General Hodges and I talked about. It's one thing to launch an invasion across a land border. Uh, it's another thing entirely to carry out a, what would have to be a, an amphibious assault 
across 100 miles of open ocean between the mainland China and onto Taiwan, you could have airborne assaults and you could have certainly missile strikes and airstrikes that, uh, that support you and naval actions that support that. But that is a highly complex military operation to carry out. Uh, any thoughts on that? Well, extre extremely complicated and extremely high risk. Yeah. And, and so, you know, there aren't that many places where, where the, uh, the, the PLA and the, and the Navy can actually, uh, uh, you know, enforce a lodgment there. And so I think, I think uh, the people of Taiwan have to, have to take a look at this and say, okay, what lessons can we learn here? And how hard can we, can we make this? And how can we, how can we um, convince uh, uh, Xi Jinping that he shouldn't do this? I think there are some things that they could do. And I think we're in, we're in those kinds of discussions with, uh, with, uh, with Taiwan right now. But I, I do find it very interesting, very high risk. You know, if anything, World War II taught us that that these operations are really, really costly, and that's that's that hasn't changed. I mean, the technology has changed, uh, but the principle of putting putting uh, men and women on boats to to do a, a lodgement in an airborne or air assaults uh, onto onto the mainland, it would be really dangerous. And I'm not I'm not sure that uh, they could withstand the kind of losses. And we we know that they haven't they haven't fought a war in a long time. Um, and so it was 1979. It didn't go as well as they wanted it to. Uh, with Vietnam. And, you know, speaking of Vietnam and other partners, I think there is an appetite to have discussions with partners um, in the Pacific. And, you know, if you if you recall, Barack Obama, our president, then said, hey, we got to pivot to the Pacific. Um, DIA has been on a journey to do that. And so as we as we look at um, our own readiness as an agency and where we need to be, we think we think our posture in the Pacific uh, could improve. Um, I've had these discussions with Indo-PACOM. And so we're making some moves now to increase our, our posture there. Um, and, and we think over the next uh, year or two, we're, we're going to be in a bit of a better position here. But um, listen, this is going to go on. Uh, you know, the question of 2027 will remain. I'm sorry, I can't give you a straight answer on no, that. No, that's okay. That's okay. Um, depending, <laughs> depending on who you talk to, it's 25 or 26 or maybe 28, 29 or maybe maybe even later than that. You know, our goal would be to uh, so effectively compete in this strategic competition space that uh, that China says, you know what, we, we just don't want to do this militarily. We're going we're gonna to try some other way. Yeah, de deterrence is always best, right? Uh, if to avoid war, always be prepared for war. <laughs> Absolutely. That's uh, so. You know, we're, we're supporting uh, the Department of Defense on this. We just want to bring um, insights to uh, to uh, our secretary and our chairman and our combatant commanders to give them the decision space they need to uh, to make plans and, and do uh, what they can do. Yeah, uh, General, we only have about uh, about five minutes left or so in the show. Uh, I think at this point, our, our listeners no doubt have a much greater appreciation for DIA's national security mission, all that you do to support our uh, policymakers on the civilian side, certainly the leadership within the Department of Defense, and uh, all the combatant commanders around the world, as well as supporting our partners. Uh, for those inspired to apply for positions at DIA, what kind of qualifications specifically are you seeking for candidates, and what kind of career paths could young people have if they were hired on at DIA? So I, so I appreciate that question because the sky is the limit. Um, about every week or so, I have the opportunity to swear in the latest class of, uh, of DI officers who are just rolling in for the first time. And it's really cool to do that because a lot of these, these folks don't have military experience and it's the first time they're actually taking the oath. So I link, I link that oath um, and the commitment to our constitution to the blue security badge that everybody gets. And that's a deal and you can't break that deal. So we're gonna give you the keys to the kingdom on a top secret network. Um, you have to be able to perform and you're taking the oath. So you're now part of this national security um, enterprise. But whether, whether you come in to be an analyst, a counterintelligence agency, a DIA cop, uh, whether you're a logistics person, whether, whether, you have, uh, whether you're an accountant, uh, program manager, or whether you're a human intelligence collector or a scientist, the, the sky is the limit 
in DI in terms of what you can do. And so we just want people who are motivated, intellectually curious, who want to serve their country and, and want to be part of this national security enterprise. General, if our listeners wanted to read unclassified reporting from DIA directly, is there, is there a mechanism for them to do so, to stay informed? There is. One of the things that made us famous in the, in the 1970s and 80s where we, we did these unclassified military power studies to expose what the Soviet Union was doing. And we, we couldn't use real imagery because it was classified, so we used <laughs> artist renderings. And they were pretty cool. We, we handed them out to all of our friends and partners around the world. You can actually access those on a DIA.mil a website right now. We have uh, we have an unclassified uh, pub on China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, and space counter space. Really, really good reads. You can put them on your desk and print them out, and uh, they're available. and And uh, we'll continue to uh, to upgrade those and probably produce more in the coming coming months and years. General, I always like to give my guests sort of the last word. Uh, is there anything you'd like to say about the people who uh, who work at the Defense Intelligence Agency? Listen, I'm, I am uh, I'm so thankful you're giving me this opportunity. Uh, I am inspired every single day um, as I move around DIA, as I go to our different facilities, as I engage officers who have been here two months, or I engage the officers that have been here 30 or 35 years. Uh, what they do and how committed they are to our national security and our country uh, is amazing, and it's the honor of my life, probably in the last assignment I'm going to have to lead this organization. We've got uh, a great team. Uh, they're, they're doing the work every single day. And I want, I want the American people to know uh, that they can trust their defense intelligence agency to do the right thing uh, when we need to. So, John, thanks very much. You bet, sir. Uh, unfortunately, we've come to the end of today's edition of National Security This Week. Uh, Lieutenant General Scott Barrier, Director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, thank you so much for the opportunity for, to learn from you today about all the things that DIA does and where they fit into the defense intelligence uh, enterprise and, and more broadly, the U.S. intelligence community. John, thanks very much. And, and personally, thank you for uh, your service, not only to the Navy, but also this defense intelligence enterprise. And I know you've been inside DIA headquarters a time or two, and you, you know what we're about. So it's really good to see you, and thanks for your service. Two tours inside DIA. <laughs> one as naval attache and one as uh, in a capacity I'm not going to talk about. Uh, folks, that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. Look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for being a listener to National Security This Week. Have a great finish to your week. Take care, everyone. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week.